Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Seems to be three main differences. First, many young adults today who leave church never had strong religious ties to begin with. Second, those who drop out and have gotten married tend to have a spouse who is also not religious. And finally, millennial church dropouts are unlikely to view religion as a necessary part of their teaching their own children morality. So what lesson do we take from that data? We really are losing a generation of young churchgoers, and they're probably not coming back, at least not if we stay our current course. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to change course. And that's what Josh Waltman is here to address. Josh is is a bivocational preacher, theology professor, professor, academic librarian, and professional musician. He holds a bachelor's in philosophy and religion from Liberty University and master's degrees in theology and apologetics and library science from LU and the University of Kentucky. He is also in the process of completing his Ph.D. in theological studies from Columbia Biblical Seminary, where his research is focused on the Trinity and the hiddenness of God. Josh served as a teaching pastor in Chester, Virginia for five years, and he now serves as an elder at Living Word Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. He currently lives in Rustburg with his wife, Whitney, and their one-year-old son, Jack. Would you please welcome Josh Waltman. Make sure I'm unmuted here. Okay. Uh, Let me get the PowerPoint up. Uh, Here we go, and we'll kind of get started here. Um, Thank you, guys. I just want to say, first off, thank you so much to Todd for your expertise. Last night was fantastic. Uh, And Stephen for for really his wisdom this morning. It's just really beneficial to me just to uh, hear from these two guys. And I know it's beneficial to everyone in the room, but but I'm certainly no no exception there. Uh, The title for my presentation today is Tactics for Reaching a Post-Christian Culture. And so a post-Christian culture, as Dane has mentioned, when we talk about a post-Christian culture, we really are talking about a culture where the majority of people do not affiliate with a religious organization of, of some sort. The Gallup poll was a good indication of that, but we've known for years that there are many people that maybe have affiliated uh, with church or mosque or uh, you know, so forth for years, or maybe they've said that they've affiliated, maybe they, they say that they're religious in some way, shape, or form, uh, but really a small percentage of those that would say that actually are dedicated church members and so forth. So. We've known for years that our culture uh, has been waning when it comes to the influence of the church. And one thing that I maybe took from Todd's presentation last night is that at times it's not just that our influence is waning, but it's also that there are times when we see hostility towards the church. It's outright hostility in terms of culture. So when we talk about reaching a culture like that, I think it can be, um, it, it can give you a sense of, of a feeling of anxiety and feeling like the, the future is very bleak for the church. But I'll be honest with you, I am extremely hopeful. I think that in many ways this creates opportunities that we haven't seen before in exactly the same way. I think, I'll just be honest with you, I hate nominal Christianity. I hate it. I hate it so much 
Uh, I was saved out of it. I think that's a problem in Southern churches in particular. And so a culture like this gets rid of nominal Christians. And so I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to, to sort of be said about living in a time and in an age that's considered post-Christian. Everyone's trying to answer this question right now. Okay, How do we reach out to the culture around us when it's not so easy, it's not built in that people are just expected to come to church as maybe it would have been in previous generations? If that's not the case, how do we, how do we actually get people through those front doors? Uh, I'm going to give you some framework for how I think about this, but realize, you know, we could spend, we could spend the entire weekend talking about this question. I'm gonna give you big picture how I think about it, and if it's helpful, take some of it. If it's not and you disagree, let's talk about it, that's cool, uh, don't. Uh, but I'm just wanting to get you guys thinking about maybe uh, some, some ways of strategizing moving into the future. Okay, so next slide. I don't put this up here to show pictures of myself, Though that's a really cool deer. Um, <laughs> I just want to kind of tell you how I'm approaching the question, all right? Because I think that that's helpful for you guys to get some context as far as my, my perspective. I'm a walking contradiction. Okay, I know that. I'm a country boy turned academic who also has played music uh, professionally for a decade in bars and venues and uh, places that most Christians don't go. Uh, so I, I've spent a lot of time with lost people uh, from various walks of life and seen you know, what are Christians doing across the country to try to address this question. And also, it's kind of weird, not only am I working with students every day, I actually have 70 people that work for me that are in between the ages of 18 and 25, every single one of them. So I don't have anyone in their 30s that works for me. I'm around the next generation every day, all day. And I'm the old guy, okay? So, uh, it, it, you know, I just have an interesting perspective on how I approach this question. All right, next question, or next slide. Uh, in addition to all that, the church that I served was in Richmond, Virginia. And so what we found ourselves doing in the past five years is completely rehashing and revamping vamping and rebranding the church, thinking about strategically how can we reach a culture that when they hear the word Baptist, which is what we had in the title of the church at the time, they heard racist. Okay, so rethinking how we are reaching people around us when they have that perception of a conservative Baptist church. And so we went through that whole, uh, that whole process very, very recently. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of have some interesting takes on that from the experience. Uh, but what we're going to do today, three parts. Number one, I want to talk about millennial culture. Uh, the post-Christian culture is millennial. Uh, it really is. There are more millennials on the, on, in the country, on the planet right now, than any other generation, statistically speaking. And so, you know, our culture is millennial, so there are some unique sort of uh, descriptors and some attributes of this particular demographic that should shape how we think about ministry today. Then I want to move into what I'm going to call theological paradigm shifts. Um, that's just... My way of saying this, when I teach, when I preach, when I think about curriculum design, when I think about doing programming at church, I filter it through this framework that I'm going to give you today. And again, if it's helpful to you, awesome. That's, that's my, my goal. Uh, and then number three, some very pointed applications and challenges for your church. Hopefully that you can maybe adopt some of these things and apply it to your context. Next slide. 
So contours of the millennial culture. Uh, next slide. So uh, just some general uh, thoughts on millennials as we talk about this. And, and Stephen really touched on this quite a bit. Dane has mentioned it in a lot of his introductions as well. Uh, the millennials, first of all, uh, are that age group between those that are born between 1982 and 2004. Uh, so the generation that comes after Gen X and before Gen Z. Uh, so in, if you fall in that age group, you are considered a millennial. Uh, I'm a millennial, okay? And so this is, this is my people, all right? Uh, I love millennials. Millennials are weird people. Uh, and I, but I love my people because I'm weird like them, all right? So, uh, but th there's a couple of things here. Again, it's the largest living generation in our country today. And you talk about culture making. We've mentioned politics a number of times today. Politics is downstream of culture. It always has, be, has been and always will be. And so the millennials are making the culture right now they are dictating what culture says, and that's getting passed down ultimately into our political and governmental systems. So a lot of uh, points of commonality can be found between what Todd is saying uh, last night and what I'm gonna say today for that reason. Um, again, statistically, they have the largest living generation. Uh, and funny enough, like Dane mentioned a second ago, I think Stephen did as well, the generation really is not having families very early in life. They're not having as many kids as previous generations. So what makes them larger uh, has something to do with immigration, believe it or not, in our mm -hmm. country. Uh, immigration has really changed some of the demographics of our country in this way. Next slide. So talking about millennials, who are they? I'm gonna summarize it first of all this way. They're social and connected. They are all about relationships but those relationships are somewhat different than maybe what gener other generations think of um, because they're social. And when I say social, I mean connected. Uh, connected in the sense that when a millennial goes to bed at night, they have their phone right beside their, uh, beside their bed. And when they wake up in the morning, they're connected by their phone. And throughout the day until the time they go to sleep again, they're constantly connected. And I'm talking about the rule, not the exception. I know that there are exceptions, but nevertheless, this is the first generation that's ever been connected constantly to other people. So what this means is the people that are influential in millennials' lives aren't necessarily their neighbors, aren't necessarily their family members. Sometimes they're influencers online. Uh, there's more content on YouTube than you could ever watch if you spent your entire lifetime watching videos on YouTube. It, there's actually more content on YouTube right now than any one person could ever consume. It, it would be impossible. You could spend 90 years and, and doing nothing but watching YouTube videos and you never get through it all. Millennials have access to that content. When they go to uh, learn about how to fix an engine or change their oil, they go to YouTube. <laughs> you know, uh, they don't necessarily pull out an encyclopedia or ask their, their dad or ask their friend. Uh, they have access to content. They know how to use uh, information in that way. They're digital natives uh, is the terminology that gets thrown around. They're native to the digital environment and platform. So they're always connected. But because they have inf information at their fingertips, I would say this. Um, they tend to live their lives uh, by the meme. Live by the meme, die by the meme. All right? uh, they tend to have a lot of information that is an inch deep and a mile wide, uh, just as a general rule of thumb. And that gets applied to religion, that gets applied to politics. 
So critical thinking tends to be a problem for the millennials because you know, they don't need to solve the problem themselves. They can go to YouTube and find someone else who has solved it for them, right? Uh, next slide. Uh, next, they're actually educated, individualistic, and complicated. They're the most educated generation in our history uh, as a country. Uh, more education than any other uh, de uh, demographic uh, that's ever existed in America. As I mentioned, critical thinking isn't as strong, um, but, but they are very much experience-driven. Okay, experience-driven and relationship-driven. You can see how those two things go hand in hand. Um, when I say experience-driven, and I'll get to this in a little bit more in a little bit, uh, but they care about the experience, not only that they have, but also the experience of others and protecting the experience of others. That's why you would likely see a millennial take up a social justice cause very often. They care about being empathetic of protecting the individualistic uh, experience of other people. Uh, as a generation, uh, you know, millennials care about social causes for just for that reason. And to go dub, hand in hand with that and to dovetail with that, uh, they know more people um, than previous generations who are in fact gay. Uh, and so you can see how that can go hand in hand. They care about protecting the experiences of their family and friends who are, consider themselves to be gay transsexual, and so forth. Uh, so, with that, I would also like to note they're slower to have families, has, has already been said today. Um, they're waiting sometimes until their 30s to have those families and to have kids. Why, you say, I ask, I ask some of my employees that all the time. You're 25 years old, why don't you wanna get married? Well, I'm afraid I'm gonna miss something. That's what they say. I'm afraid that I'm gonna miss out on my 20s. That's what they say and that kids become a barrier to the experience they could have in their 20s uh, if they were to have a family. So the, the, the mentality here is very prevalent. On the flip side of that, they cohabitate more than any other generation in the past. So broken relationships, we understand that the cohabitation is gonna come hand in hand with brokenness because you're uh, living together but not married, right? So uh, the relationships themselves are very broken as a result. Next slide. As Dane mentioned, they're not necessarily interested in religion per se. Uh, a study was done by Rainer and Rainer uh, on the kids, the family members of evangelicals in America. This was done a couple years ago. The results came out fairly recently. The kids of evangelical families, according to their study, have a pretty large sample size. They said only 13% of them said that religion or spirituality mattered to them much at all. 13%. These are church kids. Okay? So church kids are saying they don't really care about religion or spirituality. And I'm uh, talking about adult children here, not necessarily uh, younger than that. But of, of those, they also don't necessarily agree with what's called the exclusivity of the gospel. They don't necessarily believe that Jesus is the only way. Because again, they're very empathetic to the individual rights and experiences of others who disagree with them. So that's coming back around here. Family and friends are very important to them, nevertheless, which is a good thing, praise God. Uh, they're very optimistic about changing the world. They're social justice warriors and so forth, many of them, uh, or at least they're prone to that. And that can go on both sides, right? Millennials care about, if they're a conservative millennial, they care very much about changing the world for conservatism. Uh, if they're a liberal uh, millennial, they care very much about changing the world in that direction as well. 
They are very optimistic that they can take an active role in changing the society around them for whatever, for whatever uh, direction that they particular, particularly choose. And they're often called the mediating generation. And this is where I find a lot of encouragement and hope. This is a generation that, as I say, they're empathetic towards others. They care about the plight of the downtrodden. They care about the plot of, or excuse me, the plight of the oppressed, okay? And we can, we can layer some of these other ideologies on top of that. We mentioned earlier today CRT, critical race theory, and others. And that becomes problematic for the millennial because, again, they tend to be an inch deep and a, uh, and a mile wide, but they care about others and they're interpreting through a lens but don't necessarily have the tools to analyze the lens itself. You see, that, that becomes the problem. All right, so now I'm going to speak anecdotally for a couple of slides. Um, because they have access to information, one thing that I've noticed as a librarian, especially in the academic setting, there is this tension for millennials. They can fact check anything at any time with a couple of clicks on their iPhone. So they walk into a service and you say something from the pulpit or from the uh, Sunday school, you know, from the Sunday school class and they will pull out their iPhone and they will see if what you said is true. And they can find sources because there's an infinite, seemingly infinite amount of information out there at their disposal. They can find sources to confirm whatever preconceived notion they already have, right? Confirm or reject it. There are sources out there. Anybody can write a blog post or publish an article now online that's going to affirm what they believe. Okay, so because of that, they're skeptical of the information that they're given unless they can be accepted, unless it uh, affirms what they already believe to be true. Perfect example of this, and I, hopefully I, I don't step on any toes here because that's really not my intention with this. Uh, but a perfect example of this is the recent uh, video that we've seen with George Floyd in the case there. Um, you know, regardless of what you think the outcome should have been from that case, when you saw the video, if you thought it was plausible that this was committed out of racism, then that's what you read into the video. You interpreted it that way. It became a confirmation of the presupposition that you already had. As a millennial, that happens all the time. George Floyd was not tried for racism, but if you ask the average person on the street that saw the video, they would say that, yeah, he was obviously a racist cop, right? So again, if you are someone that's like, well, I don't think that's very plausible necessarily that he was a racist, uh, and you have a different presupposition, you would be more critical of that particular video because of that. So coming to information with a previous notion in mind and finding the information to, in, to uh, interpret and justify the beliefs that you already have. That's what millennials do all the time in a variety of different ways. And so breaking through with critical thinking becomes very difficult. Next slide. Um, millennials, again, speaking anecdotally here, autonomy is a virtue and authority is questioned. Whose authority? Jesus's authority? Pastoral authority? Why should I listen to that pastor when I can find five more pastors at the click of a button that says something completely different than him? Why should I believe this pastor? Why should I believe that text when it can be interpreted in a variety of ways, and I can find those interpretations whenever I want. Right? So the skepticism comes into play uh, 
at, at all of the points that matter in a church service, almost every time. Next slide. Um, you guys that are millennials may recognize some of these images. Uh, so these are prominent millennial staples. You know, people grow up with, with movies that are uh, really popular and so forth. And, uh, you know, I think we've got EZA down at the left there, Amanda Bynes, which she's doing the typical Amanda Bynes uh, death stare. It's, it's kind of a Baptist staple, too, when you're preaching. You get that stare all the time. Um, and then you've got the, you know, the, the, the stereotypical homeschool kids in the top right, you know, as, as the world would view them, uh, Christian homeschool kids. And then you've got, like, the charismatic preacher in the top left who's just trying to get your money. What I found in Richmond, Virginia, and again, um, not to say that you couldn't find this in South Boston, Halifax County as well, I was meeting people on the college campuses there that had never heard the name of Jesus before. Like, if you went to another country and they're, you know, they're a different religion and you wouldn't necessarily expect that they have uh, any preconceived notions about Jesus, they have to start from scratch. I was finding that in America and Virginia. And so I would either find that or I would find a millennial that actually... Um, they didn't necessarily have the baggage of a church that's hurt them in the past. It's everything that they knew about Christianity came from the movies or from the, the cliches and the stereotypes. So on the one hand, I was tickled to death that I didn't have to unwrap the harm that a previous pastor had done. But on the flip side of that, we've got to compete with these stereotypes and cliches in order to show them that that's not really who Jesus is and that's not really what the church is. Um, not to get up on a soapbox uh, this morning. I'll do that uh, tomorrow. Uh, but, uh, you know, every movie and every TV show that, that you watch is preaching a sermon to you, right? It's providing a context to you. Yeah. And so millennials have heard sermons all the time in, the, in their media. They just didn't realize it was a sermon. And they've been indoctrinated in a theology, and they didn't realize they were being indoctrinated. So, yeah, it happens all the time. Amen. All right, next slide. Uh, and then finally, uh, <laughs> a hyper-focus on experience, um, not necessarily assets. Maybe different. Again, there, there's exceptions to every rule. This is just generally a rule, and it's, it's brought to bear in the numbers and also in my own experiences. Millennials care about spending their money to go on trips, not necessarily buying a house. Uh, the, the perfect example of this, what's, what, you know, when a millennial goes on a mission trip, what's the best memento they can get? Anybody want to tell me? Selfie. A selfie with some African kid in a village that goes up on their social media platform, right? Documenting and archiving, I had this experience. Because that experience, they're collectors of experience, not necessarily assets. Uh, and that's just something that I found across the board. Uh, when, they, when they think about church, what churches are doing the best right now? Well, the, the churches that are growing more than any others are the denominations in the Pentecostal tradition. They've created an atmosphere of worship. The Hillsong uh, churches, the Bethel churches, and so forth, they have their own TV channel these days. I mean, they have giant crowds in the mega cities. Why? Because they've connected in with what millennials value most, and that is experience, uh, a spiritual experience to, to put a finer point on it. Uh, next slide. So, uh, shifting now to part two, I want to talk about, at least from my perspective, an approach to doing church, setting up a church service, and 
you know, how do we strategize and think about from a conceptual standpoint what we're trying to accomplish when reaching out to millennials, okay? And I found this to be the case uh, in the theological classroom, in church, in putting together curriculum, so on and so forth. I'm always thinking through this lens. Uh, in fact, when I do my theology classes, I'm always connecting dots to this paradigm, all right? So that, that's how important that I see it in my own ministry. Uh, so next slide. Okay, so every um, theological question, questions like who is God, how do we know who God is, what does God want from us, and by extension, every important question in life, right? Because if you get the God question right, you get everything right. Or if you get the God question wrong, you get everything wrong. Can be read and interpreted and understood using four points of data using four lenses, if you will, uh, using four inputs that you use to make the decision or the conclusion on what the outcome of those questions are. So those, those data points are scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. In theology circles, this is called the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, not that you guys care about that, uh, but if you want to sm sound smart to your friends, break that out. Uh, in lunch conversation today, okay? Wesleyan quadrilateral. All right, so, uh, as I said before, generally speaking, Pentecostals have tapped into the experience component of this. When dealing with questions like this, when dealing with the church service, Catholics, generally speaking, preference tradition higher than some of the others. Baptists, generally speaking, preface scripture higher than some of the others. Non-traditional church, or excuse me, non-denominational churches, same thing, generally. Um, reason, I've, I've noticed atheists usually approach these questions primarily through the lens of reason to the detriment of the other three. They don't necessarily care about tradition or, or scripture. So the way that you prioritize and preference these different data points is going to dictate the conclusions you make, but also the things that you care about in life, right, every single time. Um, with, without fail, really. Uh, so let me sort of, let me, let me, by way of illustration, do it this. So next slide. Here's a statement that the culture, generally speaking, is going to agree with. All men are created equal. Uh, it's inherent to our government. It's inherent to our faith. It's inherent to our culture. We all say we agree, generally speaking, with this statement. If you preference tradition... What does this statement mean? This is the interactive portion of the presentation. What, if you preference tradition over other um, areas, what does this mean? What are the, what are the, what, what, what's, how would you interpret this? Sure, right. People like us, and who is the us? And that's sub somewhat subjective to a degree. Uh, it, it maybe gets in, more into the area of experience at that point. Tradition, you know, like it or hate it, uh, we have a, uh, you know, we, we do have a serious problem in our traditions in this country with racism. That's, that's just a true statement. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, that, that is true. Um, slavery was a problem in our country. So traditionally speaking, if all you're looking at is the traditions of the past, you may come away with some different conclusions. Our founding fathers may have thought differently about this statement than we do today, right? Uh, experience, like Bob said, if we preference 
uh, experience with a statement like this. Well, okay, what about the word men? What, is, what does that mean? If we've gotten rid of gender, you know, gender uh, complementarianism and we're basing that purely on experience, what does that mean? If gender is fluid, what are we talking about? Um, what about reason? Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, okay, and, and so I don't want to give the impression that our faith is at odds with reason. I'm actually a, a strong advocate that that is not the case. But if you're only looking at reason, reason alone, okay, we're, you know, created? Like, in what sense? In what sense are we created? And what are the implications of that? But also equal, right? Um, does that mean equity? That to use a catchphrase in our culture right now, does that mean everyone should have equal outcome? Does that mean equal opportunity? What does that mean? Um, so, so you can see if you ground statements, even simple statements like this, uh, without scripture, you're inevitably going to come away with differences of understanding and interpretation of the statement every single time. Make America great again. What does that mean? What does that mean? If it's based on tradition, you can see why the African-American community would not be super happy with that statement. You know, so again, you, it makes sense uh, that we're, we're interpreting all levels of knowledge and information through these lenses at all, any given point. So next slide. So when it comes to essential questions in the church, okay, so these questions that people are wrestling with, especially theological questions, if you are to ask the question, are LGBTQ practices sinful? As millennials often do, their preferencing experience in their structure, uh, I'll just use a term here, their epistemological structure to determine what's true and what's false. And so millennials are going to say experience first. Well, my son just came out as gay, so I don't want to say that this is sinful because that would mean that my son is a sinner. You see how this works? It, it, it happens every time. If you know people that are that way, or, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be this nece necessarily this sin. Uh, is gluttony a, a sin? Well, I sure do like to eat. Uh, you know, maybe it's not that bad of a sin. You see how this logic kind of infiltrates into our thinking? Whereas you flip it on its head, go ahead and go to the next slide here, and preference scripture first, then you're going to have the appropriate filter to then interpret your experiences. If your experiences become the filter to interpret your scripture, then you're gonna agree with whatever biased opinion is out there online on Google that you found that just, to use the biblical terminology, uh, you know, it, it essentially tickles your ears, okay? So you're gonna find somebody out there on the web that agrees with what your experience tells you to be true but you're not going to analyze the question objectively and you're not going to look at Scripture first. All right. Uh, next slide. Here's an important question for our purposes today. Why should I go to church? If you're filtering it through the lens of experience, guess what that creates? It creates consumerism every single time. Millennials, in church are very consumeristic on whole. They think to themselves, does this church provide me X? 
what can this church give to me and my family? Right? I'm paying tithe. I want to return. Okay? Uh, I'm, I'm buying a service that's going to give me something I need experientially. That's how they think of church. So when you think about people walking through the front door, if they don't have any church background, if, you know, if they really have no sense of discipleship in their life, what's going to bring them through their front door? They're not necessarily thinking, oh, I really need to go find a church that has good expository preaching, that really explains the Word. Again, they're not prefacing the Word. They're not, they're not necessarily wanting that. They're wanting something that's going to give their kids a means of not being heathens, or they're you know, going to have free child care for the day. Uh, or, you know, they have a sportsman's banquet and they're going to have a good meal. You know, they're going to have something that the, the church is going to give them to get them through the front door. All right, next slide. Uh, whereas, again, if you're starting with Scripture, we know, again, the authority question. Jesus told us not to forsake the fellowship of the believers. Period. Jesus told us. And so if we were to do away with whatever the church gives us, we would still come to church because Jesus told us to. That's, that's a more biblical understanding. And so uh, Scripture gives us a different lens, and it just so happens that it changes our life and helps to transform us in the discipleship and sanctification process and is and truly beneficial to us to the point that we couldn't grow in Jesus without the church. All of that's true, but we're seeing it through that lens if we start with Scripture. Next slide. So the way that I think about discipleship the way that I think about church programming, the way that I think about putting together opportunities for people to come to church, I think about it through this lens, okay? I think, how do I get millennials, how do I get the unchurched, people that don't know Jesus, to a point where they're no longer prefacing, uh, preferencing excuse me, uh, experience, but they're preferencing uh, Scripture? How do I help them in that journey to come to that conclusion and apply that framework on their lives. And specifically, just to give a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. Uh, in theology instruction, in preaching, and teaching, um, if millennials are exposed for the first time to the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement, that's the doctrine that teaches uh, that Jesus died for our sins in a uh, forensic uh, sense. He, he paid the price. It was a punitive, to use Todd's word from last night. Uh, it was a punitive sort of thing. The Lord poured out His wrath on the Son. Okay, that doctrine. To a millennial that has no church background, that's prefacing, preferencing experience, that sure does sound an awful lot like divine child abuse. Okay? Because that's their experience in the home. So you can't, you know, you've got to deal with that before you can help them to see what Scripture is actually saying and explaining to us, okay? Uh, when you look at something like uh, worldview development, how does a Christian approach politics? Okay, if politics is filtered through the lens of your experience, then your whole perception of something like justice is going to be skewed way away from what Scripture teaches about justice. Way away. So we can even use the same terminology with millennials, but if they don't have a, a view of Scripture that is elevated above experience, when I say the word justice and you say the word justice, when I say the word racism and you say the word racism, when I say the word you know, ethical and you say the word ethical, we're talking about two different things because they're interpreted through different lenses. 
One is subjective, one is less so. One is more objective, okay? You see my point? And so when we talk about something like uh, personal decision-making and crisis, uh, personal crisis and so forth, um, we, we often throw around something called the problem of evil in apologetics. You know, why does a good God allow bad things to happen in the world? Well, the, the millennial, if, if you notice, very often an apologetics argument doesn't, doesn't necessarily help them because they're interpreting their experience through the emotional uh, sort, of, sort of filter. They're, they're saying, well, I'm mad at God. I don't, you know, I don't care about the intellectual arguments. You know, my, my wife just died. God wouldn't let this happen. God would never let this happen. And so the experiential, the emotional cloud that comes with that experience is too great and they walk away from the church and they walk away from ever believing in God again. So if they are grounded in Scripture, on the other hand, there are really good answers to that, really good uh, uh, explanations to why God would allow something like that. But again, if it's all based on emotion and experience, that colors their entire mode of decision-making. becomes problematic in the extreme. Okay, next slide. Again, my, my desire today is not to say, here, here's the five things you need to do uh, to reach people in South Boston. Okay, that's not my goal. But here's some things that I have done in the past in different contexts in which I have served. Okay, so two ideas that I did. One was a curriculum design called The Dive, uh, uh, Going Deeper to Know God Greatly. So we actually did an entire summer series where I found out that the church had very little theological depth. We did a survey, found out that most people uh, called themselves Baptists but really believed more like Mormons. Uh, so that was problematic in their theology, to say the least. Uh, and so we went through and I, I basically taught a college-level class for the church uh, in theology to give them the depth that they needed. Uh, the second op idea that I, that I had, I came up with a series called Hard Things, and we dealt with the controversial issues of the day for an entire summer. We surveyed the church, found out they had a lot of questions about what Scripture taught about slavery, uh, what they, Scripture taught about immigration, what Scripture taught about uh, homosexuality, so on and so forth. And we taught through those things in a direct way, answering the questions from a biblical standpoint. Again, helping them to make the switch from experience-driven to Scripture-driven. And what we did in that, and, and I think that re really this speaks to a greater need in the culture, there is a reason that people in our culture today um, are connecting, our intellectuals in our culture are connecting with millennials. Um, do you know who is called, widely called, the Billy Graham of the millennial generation? Does anyone know? Jordan Peterson. Okay. Jordan Peterson is called the Billy Graham of our generation. He is a, an academic psychologist that's putting out YouTube videos talking about the most in-depth psychology you could ever think of, and he became popular in the mainstream because millennials didn't even know that they were so thirsty for it. When they got it, they realized, oh, shoot, uh, this is good for me. Uh, and so I think that there's, there's something to that. You know, Jordan Peterson scratches an itch that millennials don't even know that they have. So if you can get them in the door and you can start transitioning them away from experience as the primary decision maker and, and, and data point to Scripture, I think we've got something that's pretty compelling long term. Otherwise, you, you know, you, you can't pull a, a Hillsong, let's say, or a Bethel, and, a, and I don't mean to necessarily just call them out, but any church that would really uh, create an experiential service to get people through the door, 
Um, what often happens is you get a number of people through the door, but you don't have the substance in the long term, so they walk right out the back in a couple of years. So you need to have ways of getting them in the door, and often that's through experience, but then transitioning to something that's more, um, more tenable long term in terms of their worldview and discipleship. Okay, uh, next slide. So some four, four uh, applications and challenges that I want to kind of give specific, specifically to FCC. All right, so the first is this, and this may seem like it's out of left field, but it's really not, I promise. I continue to be convinced, based on what we are seeing around us, that what we face are not enemies of flesh and blood. That what we face are supernatural forces in the unseen realm that really we're seeing spiritual warfare. Influence that's beyond human influence. And, you know, you have to hold to that if you hold a biblical worldview. And so anytime you strategize, anytime you strategize for this church, it always must be with that in mind. It must be with that in mind. Because we can talk about, you know, we can talk about um, intellectual strategies until we're blue in the face, but the one that does the changing of hearts, the ones that, that, that moves people and transforms people, it's done through the power of the gospel, and that's inherently spiritual, Okay. So let's, let's start there, okay? Uh, Neil Anderson in his book, The Bondage Breaker, talks about uh, what, what's something called the excluded realm. A lot of Christians think of the spiritual realm as being out there in the heavens, and you've got the natural realm down here. Uh, and he says, no, 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 the biblical view is that the two have collided, and they're in the middle. Uh, that what we face right now occurs both on a seen and an unseen uh, way and level. So keeping that in mind. Next slide. Challenge number two. Okay, I don't want to dive too far into this, but it does illustrate a general point. Many missionary programs or organizations, when they um, are preparing missionaries to go to the field to plant churches, they provide missionaries with this model. It's called the four fields model. And essentially, you've got to do four things well if you want to plant a church and see it grow. All right? You've got to be able to have instances where you're plowing and developing a field. You've got to have instances where you're planting seeds. You've got to have instances where you're tending to the crop. And you've got to have instances where you're reaping. You've got to do all of those things if you're going to be successful in the field. Okay? So one of the things that churches do, very, uh, uh, do not do very well in my experience, uh, they don't do a very good job reaching out to millennials to have landing points for ministry. Dane referenced this a little while ago, uh, and it just there's, there's a lot of commonality in what he was saying. Let me ask this question, especially for you guys that are elders. Who are you trying to reach? Who? How are you trying to reach them? Because if you can't answer that, you're probably not going to reach them by accident. Okay, You've got to be strategic in saying we're specifically going after this demographic and these are the ways that they're going to find their way into our church. And maybe, uh, to Dane's point, that that happens in the home first. Maybe that's the more effective way of doing that. But nevertheless, what is the strategy that you guys have come up with that has said we're going after this group of people and we're going to get them here? Maybe one by one, 
Maybe it happens in mass. I don't know. I'm not going to put the Lord in, the box, in a box in that way. But, but what specifically are you doing? How do they find their way to be connected? What are those landing points? And I'll say it too. Uh, millennials are very relational and experience-driven. You continue to hear me say that. So that means that your landing points, if it is to reach the millennial generation anyway, need to be tailored in those ways. They really do. You know, what is it that's going to get someone through the front door? Well, it's probably going to be an experience that they had because you, you served them well while they were grieving, because you served them well while they were dealing with an issue with their family, because you provided something for their kids. You know, whatever that is, make sure you have those landing points uh, in place. At the church I was serving at, we actually decided to pare back on what we were doing so that uh, we could be more strategic and effective in the things that we decided to do for just this reason. Uh, next slide. Challenge number three, uh, contextualize the gospel, all right? Um, the, the two pictures you see there were two pictures that, uh, of, of experiences that I had back-to-back -back nights one weekend, all right? So the first on the left, I found myself, because of the sphere of influence, uh, or the sphere of people around me, I should say, uh, I found myself in the study of a, of a famous pastor in Washington, D.C., has incredible influence on some of the intellectuals there in the city, and he's mentoring young men uh, every Friday night in his study, all right? Okay, so I, I found myself there one night, and the very next night, I found myself at a concert venue that a church was holding with a bunch of people that you know, had incredibly bad body odor, uh, tattoos, gauges, and so forth. Uh, half of them were drunk, and so forth, all right? Uh, I saw the gospel shared in both, okay? The first group seriously cared about um, intellectual study, intellectual, uh, you know, uh, reasoning. Um, they cared much about Bible study, and they were being reached uh, in a way that, you know, I have not seen very much, to be perfectly honest. The second group, they were being reached in a way that I have not seen very much, to be perfectly honest. Uh, these people care about community. These people care about the, you know, feeling like they're part of a family because their families are broken. They care about those things, but they would never mix with the first group. They would never mix with the first group, right? So contextualizing the gospel doesn't mean just explaining the gospel in a way that your people group can understand it. We, we, we all know that. You know, I, I can't go to Africa and use a you know, a magic routine to, you know, talk about the gospel because they're going to probably in that society think about it as paganism, right? It's, uh, they're built on some of those uh, witchcraft and everything over there, witch doctors and everything. The culture wouldn't allow for it. We, we know that, but what we need to understand on the flip side is that the gospel itself is contextual in, in the environment in which we find ourselves. So when someone comes through the front door, you become an ambassador for Jesus are they able to hear what you have to say because you have welcomed them in because you've shown kindness to Stephen's point? Because they're seeing Jesus in you and you've created a place where someone like in the second group could be accepted. Are you doing events where you're going to reach people like that, right? Um, are you in the, the neighborhood and the community reaching people like that strategically and intentionally, all right? Um, next slide. So one thing that you might consider here, and I want to be very, very careful how I say this, because 
FCC is a very special church uh, in, a, in a number of ways, one of which is you guys clearly care about Jesus, about serving, about the gospel, not necessarily putting money into buildings and all of that fluff. You know, uh, I just, I'm just telling, telling you like it is. I think that that's an incredible asset. Praise God for you. I wish there were more like you, okay? That being said, every time that a millennial... Uh, comes into contact with your church, they're getting a narrative. Okay? That might, and where are millennials, by the way? Connected online. Social media, website. They're, they're, they're getting an experience when they come to church. Um, you know, so it doesn't mean, what, what I'm saying here does not mean that you, in order to be effective in your ministry context, that you need to be seeker-sensitive, okay? And it doesn't mean that you need to change the outside of, of your church or anything like that. You don't have to do a full rebrand like we had to do in Richmond and take Baptists out of the title of the church and everything. Uh, we actually ended up changing the sanctuary and changing the outside exterior of the church so it didn't look like an old, uh, antiquated church building that no millennial would ever be caught dead in, okay? We didn't want that to be a barrier to entry. I'm not necessarily saying that about your church, but I am saying... Whoever you're trying to reach, you need to have a plan and hopefully be intentional and strategic in how your narrative gets told, okay? There is a narrative either way. When someone, um, when someone looks you up online, when someone comes into the building, they're going to have an experience. They are. You guys need to be in control of what experience they have. And, and maybe it's, hey, I, I'm, we're the church that... We're going to love you. We're not going to care about, we're going to, we're going to show you that we're not going to care about all of the, the fluff. We're going to give you meat. You know, maybe this is, you know, your church is really going to serve and, and uh, provide that sort of, of, of uh, teaching and, and really, you know, be known for that. Amen. Do it. Right. Um, but, you know, I would even go so far as to say, just in terms of an application here, think seriously about if a new family walks through the door of the church, okay? What kind of hospitality are they given? What kind of kindness are they shown? What is the message that they're given? Have you followed up with them? Have you connected with them on a relational basis? Right? Because, it, because that's the language of millennials. That is the language. And they're going to receive that one way or the other. The question is, are you going to be intentional and strategic in how you give it and how you tell your story? All right, so the next, uh, next question here, or next slide, excuse me. Um, just a, a few thoughts here, and I don't want to harp on this too much because I think this has already been t discussed uh, in Stephen's uh, uh, conversation. Uh, so five barriers that will close the door. When you talk about hospitality, when you talk about the experience of the visitor as they come into your church uh, or into your home as well, like if you're doing that in your home and, and that's really the landing point, uh, that you're going to be intentional about reaching people. Uh, these are five barriers that will keep you from being effective. So if, if you do these five things, it's not going uh, to be helpful to them. You're not going to get them to church if they're a millennial. The first is a hypercritical spirit. Um, we are all very concerned about the state of our culture. Amen? I'm very concerned. It's very disheartening. It's problematic. But when you invite visitors over to your home and you lead with all of the criticism probably not going to come off too, too great, okay? It's probably going to set a tone, not of warmth and welcoming and caring about them. 
it's going to set a tone of you're just a nitpicker about everything that they hold dear. Okay, so a hypercritical spirit. Number two, I call this epistemic humility. Uh, one thing that I've learned as, as I've worked on a PhD uh, is that the more I know, the less I know. Um, People with PhDs know nothing. They're idiots, all of them, okay? I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Um, it's a true statement. Um, you, you know, not, not claiming that you know more than you know. Millennials care about the authenticity. Millennials care about the transparency, about the kindness. Uh, and be corrigible on the things that you can be corrigible on. We're not going to bend and flex on the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is the only way. Amen. And we're going to preach it until uh, Jesus returns, Okay. We're not going to bend on that. But on the things that we're not so sure on in the gray, you know, you might be more inclined to listen and learn uh, than to hold those things so hard and fast and near and dear. Uh, failure to know and be known. Again, just to say uh, we, we need to, to build relationships into the discipleship pro process. Uh, again, people aren't coming into the church that are unchurched thinking, I just really need expository preaching. And if you can give me that in a church app, then I'll con continue to come. That's not how they're thinking unless they have church background. So you're only going to church or reach people that have church backgrounds if you think that way. You have to be able to give them the relationship so that when they enter through the front doors, you've connected with them, right? You have connected with them on a personal level. You've shown interest in them. You're going to follow up with them uh, and you know, let them know that you care specifically about them and their family, all right? Uh, and all mind and no heart and all heart with no mind. Just a personal motto of mine is that we have to live with truth and love. Both of those, to the detriment of the other, will always render us ineffective. Okay. Uh, next slide. And the fourth and final challenge here. I'm convinced that pre-evangelism pre is going to be more important than ever in our culture. Okay. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It used to be that you, when, you, when you try to reach a neighborhood... What you do is you'll go around and you knock on every door in that neighborhood and you share the gospel with them, okay? Door-to-door -door evangelism, right? Um, the prevailing model in, in church planning today is not door-to-door -door evangelism. It's something called servant or relationship evangelism. Why? Well, because you show people that you love and care for them before you give them the gospel because it sets the stage of the relationship and the experience before you give them the meat of the truth, okay? So um, I, I think that that continues to be true. I really, really do, especially for this generation. We have to lay the foundation before we come through and do the floor and the beams and so forth. We have to do the work of tilling the garden before we actually plant the seed. And I think that that really continues to be true. An example of this, I found myself at a concert in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina one time. I was sitting on a couch um, and just talking to this girl. And this girl, just in talking to her, she is a uh, religious, nihilistic pagan, okay? Um, and hates Christians, okay? Hates them. So if I had led with the gospel, if I had led with the Romans Road, guess what would have happened? Cut off right there, you're a bigot. How dare you talk to me that way? What I did instead was, tell me about what you, you, know, what you believe. How did you get here? What's your story? What's your narrative? Uh, why do you believe that? And I ultimately took her through, through using the Socratic method to a point where I was able to get her 
to kind of admit that there were some inconsistencies with what she actually believed. And guess what? Now I can talk about those inconsistencies in a way that's loving and already has demonstrated that I care about her as a person and her story. So what I'd like to propose is number, uh, the next slide here, is that when we interact with unbelievers and the lost around us, that we actually don't think about this in terms of getting them to decide to follow Jesus today. I, I think that that comes across as a sales pitch. Uh, that comes across as pushy. Uh, it's much better that when we're dealing with unbelievers to rather help them take just one step at a time. Um, you, you know, there are going to be people that have no God framework, people that actually have emptiness, and they, they have that experience where they realize existentially that there's no meaning in life without God. They're going to have that. Some people are going to have an awareness or an interest in God. Some people are going to actually have intellectual objections at some point that's keeping them from believing. Some people will actually have good reasons. Uh, they just haven't taken the step yet. But then eventually they're going to have the, uh, the ability to actually affirm the faith and make the decision to follow Jesus. Our faith is inherently an experiential faith. You cannot simply know that Jesus is Lord intellectually, right? It is a matter of deciding to take up your cross and follow Jesus experientially. We don't worship Scripture. We worship Jesus, and that's personal and experiential. Okay, so because of that, I think millennials get that right, but we can't give them the sales pitch of, hey, I need you to jump six steps in one conversation. In our conversations, in our relationships, even if it's long-term, help them to at least make one step along the way whether that be in a church service, whether that be in personal conversation, wherever your landing point is, whatever that looks like. Again, strategically, how is this church reaching this demographic? What are our landing points? And when we find those landing points, using this way of thinking about getting them to switch from experience to scripture as their primary decision uh, maker, okay? So that's, that's the, the gist of, of kind of how I think about strategizing ministry. And we'll kind of go to the next slide here uh, and I'll take any questions. Well, I've got several, okay. and I, what I want to, and, and let's just do it as our Q&A, and, we'll, okay. and then we'll wrap up and take a break. First, would everybody please stand up, raise your hands, stretch that way, oh yeah, stretch that way, oh yeah, if you got room, put one leg in front of the other and do that deal there, oh man, yeah, that'll make you feel way better. This should, this is a, a, a uh, exercise designed to free up all those questions that were floating around in your head and landed down in your stomach someplace and um, I'm just gonna stand up okay. and, and use this and uh, because as Josh was talking I was like oh yeah oh yeah so um, one of the things was I, I just thought um, can we just wait until they get exhausted like Ecclesiastes and, and go broke because they have no assets and then they'll be willing to talk? Is that... Might take 25 years. Might take 25 years. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, you know, spell check has really kind of ruined me. So would you please spell Westland Quadrilateral? No, thank you. I played the <laughs> um, <laughs> The therapeutic has become transcendent, like yeah. Philip Reef said. So, and I think you've tried to address this, how do we get people to rearrange their filters? How does that happen? And you, you've, you've spoken to it, but 
Have you ever actually seen somebody rearrange their filters and start from Scripture first and go the other way? So let me start with a non-Christian example. I think one of the reasons that, again, Peterson, Jordan Peterson, is so compelling to people. And by the way, he's not a believer not, yet. Correct. He is sympathetic, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. praise yeah. God. Um, but you know, his, his book, 12 Rules for Life, is helping the millennial take personal responsibility over the choices that he makes. That's, that's the book in a nutshell, 12 ways to do that. And so that's transformational for people. And when people experience, you know what, if I do that, then my life is better. I, I think that that's similar, uh, at least analogous, to what happens when people t uh, taste and see, to use the biblical terminology. When they taste that the Lord is good, when they realize that, you know what, Jesus is walking with me, and this is transformational on a whole new level, not just of my mind, but of my soul, I, I think that, that that actually becomes, and excuse the negative connotation here, it actually becomes addictive. Um, when someone is walking with Jesus, personal holiness, and tasting and seeing that he's good, um, you know, they realize this is something I've not experienced before, and I want more of it. So, you know, I, I think from a ministry standpoint, um, a couple of practical things. One, not just always preaching and teaching and doing things about what you shouldn't do, right? Uh, preaching and teaching about the things that draw you closer to the Lord. So if you've got somebody in your congregation, for example, uh, who's an artist, help them make the connection between doing art and how that connects to serving Jesus. And, and you know, water that. You know, till, you know uh, manage that. Help and let that grow. Let that become uh, important to their life. And Jesus is going to use that uh, in, in very powerful ways. And so I think finding ways for people to make those kinds of connections, not just not committing sin, but drawing near to Jesus. Uh, and and that, that becomes transformative. Questions? I, I, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, and, and Stephen's going to have to correct me if I say anything wrong here, the Schaeferian method is very helpful here. You know, taking, taking their worldview to its, you know, to its conclusion. Hey, man, how's that working for you? You know, is your life better because you've taken this view? Um, and inevitably, the answer is always going to be no, if they're honest. And again, not that you're going to convince them in, you know, in one step. That's probably going to be multiple steps uh, through longer periods of time because they, they don't have the framework. If y'all decided that you're going to throw a revival tomorrow, right? The old time haystack revivals. Nobody's going to come to that, right? The only people who can come to that are people that are in your church. And that's great. Amen. But if you're trying to reach lost, you're going to have to help them take steps along the way. And I think helping them to see that their current worldview collapses on itself experientially is a good first step. Go ahead, Steve. I have some tension in my own mind there, just a full, full disclosure. On the one hand, I'm a theology pro professor and advocate of all-time uh, hymns. On the other hand, I'm a Christian rock artist. Uh, so again, I'm a walking paradox, okay? Um, so I definitely have some, uh, some serious qualms with the churches of, uh, of the day that are you know, really trying to manipulate people emotionally into making a decision, you know, to follow Jesus. I have some serious issues with that. On the other hand, I think we have good precedent in the Old Testament for creating uh, outward expressions of where we want people to be 
spiritually and internal to their heart. So the reason that you know, we, write, we light incense and the reason that you see some expressions of worship in the Old Testament, uh, externally, it's not because the external thing was itself important, but it was because it was demonstrating an internal submission. And so to the extent that a church is able to create a worship environment where you've got the preference of rock and maybe dim lights or whatever, and that doesn't become an idol and that doesn't take away and actually you know, helps the church to submit internally, then it can be good. Um, but to the extent that uh, I mentioned the church previously in D.C., they are firmly convicted that no lights will be dimmed, um, it will be one guitar on stage acoustic, and you know, that's going to be turned down really low, and it's truly liturgical in every possible way where everyone is focusing on the words. Amen to that, too. Um, I, I think that to a certain degree, you have to know where your people are and what they need. Um, and knowing where the idols are and knowing what the preferences are of the people you're trying to reach comes into play. Um, I'd have a hard time worshiping uh, in, a, in an African-American church, just to, just to be perfectly honest, because of a, a worship preference. Um, and that's one of the reasons they would have a hard time worshiping absolutely. here. Uh, it's a worship preference. I, I'm not totally convinced that every church can reach every people group. Right. Let, me, let me ask a couple of landing place questions. Yeah because I know this discussion fairly well. And um, two of the things that occurred to me right away was, gee, we ought to take all that furniture out of the lobby and set that up as our, as our FCC coffee shop. Mm. So that as soon as you walk in the door, that's your, that's your experience is, mm. oh, this is like that, that cool place that I go yeah. to every morning on my way to work. You know, it's, it's where I... Can I give you a caveat to that? Yeah, sure. Okay, caveat to that. It's not about the coffee. No. Are you kidding? I hate Starbucks coffee. Yeah, I hate coffee, okay, personally. It's not about having a foyer and having a coffee bar. It's about connecting with people. The coffee is the means by which that happens. So just because you set up a coffee bar, a lot of churches do this. They set up a coffee bar and like, yeah, we did our thing. It's hospitality. That's yeah. not what it is. Yeah. You have to actually still use that to connect with people. There actually have to be people with right. the coffee right. who, are, who are the outgoing, engaging types. Right. Yeah. right. Okay, here's the second one, and I think you've been wonderful and and actually very polite and respectful of FCC but you mentioned our our websites as landing places and you'll all be happy to hear that Mark is almost finished reconstructing making a new website for us um, I have written very yeah. bluntly and plainly about the uh, sexual issues John Stone Street calls them the pelvic issues in our culture should a church like this one stop addressing that stuff on its public pages and save it for its private closed discipleship times together, or given the context where we are, where we're, uh, you have your largest audience in a room on yeah. Sunday morning and you've got your largest reading audience in your blog. I'm going to pull a tie. Maybe. <laughs> so don't sue me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think really knowing where you're serving, right? In Richmond, it's different than South Boston right now. Yeah. But that could change in five years. Yeah. You know, knowing where you're serving, what, what, are, what are the issues that are barriers right away to the target demographic that you're looking to minister to? Right. 
So if if you've got a you know a, a rural town and that the homosexuality issue isn't really debated, it's not really a hot topic per se. It's growing. Yeah. So I think knowing who you're trying to reach is a big part of that. And, yeah. Uh, I'll so. t I'll tell you something interesting about the the whole landing place thing again. I get uh, feedback on my blog when I post it out on my website, and also I can see how many people hit it on the FCC website. So it's in two places, and then I load it up on Facebook. The ones that get the greatest hits are the one, the greatest number of hits are the ones like I did a couple of weeks ago on three steps to conflict resolution. People love that. Yeah. If you talk about, and you get lots more hits on that, lots more shares and all that. If you talk about the more difficult things, doesn't go there. Yeah, it's so. interesting. I, you know, one of the things that I've made a personal decision about, I have political views. I'm very passionate. It's, it's kind of a hobby of mine to care about politics of the day. I don't post about those things online. Why? Because people will brand me based on those views when I want them to brand me as someone who preaches the gospel. So I have those views, and Jesus speaks to those things, right? I firmly believe that, and I believe that you can't really disciple someone until you deal with some of those things. Uh, but I'm not leading with that, okay? So I don't want that to become the barrier. So there's a difference, and I think that's really critical. There's a difference between leading with right. versus getting down to the meat. Right. And so, yeah. And now the, the interesting thing with that is um, some of our experience with the Alpha Course, not particularly here, uh, but just in the training sessions, I remember Nikki and uh, a friend of mine who was actually doing Alpha way before we were, way before anybody was, up in um, Fairfax. Uh, people came to the Alpha, ch their church, because it was the Alpha Church, and it's an Anglican church, you know, very liturgical. Um, but it was the Alpha Church, had a great experience, and hung out for a couple of months, and then in a discipleship, Bible study, blah, 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 they find out the church's position on these issues get really angry and said I thought this was a cool place yeah. and you guys are I've just found out you're nuts because you don't agree with this yeah. you know you don't agree with the culture on this does, does anyone is anyone familiar with Paul Washer no okay yes. a, a really great preacher in, in terms of just being in your face right he used to talk about um, you know when it's a one shot you know the thing that I do for you guys I come in you see me for one Sunday and I leave you take a different approach than if you're pastoring a church. If you're pastoring a church, he doesn't, he's, he's known for being a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, but he didn't come in and pastor a church by leading with that sermon. He preached for two years on relationships in the family before he even talked about the problem of hell. Hmm. So, and I think that there's wisdom to that. I really, really do. That people, again, building on that relationship model, you're building relationships and trust with the people to show them the context in which you're now giving them the truth of, you know, in this case, condemnation, um, but also you know, sexual ethics, uh, whatever, whatever the case may be, you're trying your best to give that context as quickly as possible. And I'm really glad this has been awesome. Can we say thank you? Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.